Once Christ entered into the holy city of Jerusalem, symbolically declaring himself as king, he begins his Passover celebration in the upper room with a ceremonial foot washing. This is the second sermon in a five-part miniseries tracing the passion of the Lord Christ and his victory over sin, death, and the entire secular realm of men and nations. A roll covenant reading coming from Genesis and chapter 18, the book of beginnings, chapter 18, the first eight verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning for our old covenant reading, Genesis 18, 1 through 8. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked. And lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and did eat. John records to us on that faithful night during the final Passover that the Lord would eat with his disciples before his crucifixion. And John in chapter 13, the first 17 verses. And by the same spirit that moved Moses to write in Genesis, so does John write to us today. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. 
So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers. The flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. In John 13, the first verse says this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The scripture tells us that this foot washing event was during the evening of the upper room Passover feast celebration where Jesus and his disciples communed together for the last time before his crucifixion. The literal translation of verse 1, where it seems to indicate or where it seems to insinuate that this meeting was held before the feast of Passover, is not an accurate translation. In fact, the translation goes something like this. Now Jesus, having known before the feast of the Passover that his hour was come. In other words, Jesus knew that his hour had come before this feast. He didn't just knew that it came at the feast of Passover. He was going to the Passover feast because he knew that that was the hour. So the Greek is actually saying, having known beforehand... He had been preparing his whole life for his removal out of the world for the express purpose so that he might conquer the entire world. Note, he was headed toward the Father to be once again united in intimate communion with the Father as one, in unity. Before he came in his incarnation, as Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 8, he was with the Father and daily were they delighting in one another gloriously uniting one with another in the ontological Godhead. At his incarnation, he comes to bear the sin of his people, but now he's now preparing to go back to that glorious place where he would be united with the Father in intimate communion as one. Once he goes to the Father at his ascension, he would receive the reward of his inheritance, dominion and glory and power. As we read in Daniel in chapter 7, where we see in the night vision of Daniel, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancients of days, insinuating that this was to receive his honor and his glory, and they bring him near before the throne of God, and it was given to him that dominion which he earned, which Adam failed to establish. He was given that dominion and that glory which Adam failed to establish. He was given that dominion and that glory and that kingdom which Adam failed to establish. So that all nations and peoples and languages and tongues should serve him. And that dominion would then be for everlasting. So this Passover feast signified that the hour had now arrived. 
The hour had come for his departure out of the world. The time had now come when he would finally fulfill his mission as the sacrificial lamb in order to atone for his people, liberate them, and declare himself the conquering king of the entire global order. And this coincides with the other testimonies of Scripture, where at the Passover feast, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, and it's interesting how every time Judas's name is, is mentioned, it's Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. So at this point, Judas is here during the time of the Passover, where the Lord's Supper is instituted. And it was at this feast where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples after the supper had ended. Now, verse 1 sets the stage for what the Lord was about to do. Notice, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. In other words, he loved them to the uttermost. There was no other no other wording that could, could really speak of how deep the love of God was, the Lord Jesus Christ was for his people. Everything that the Lord was to experience, everything that the Lord did, his entire mission, and the reason for his, his incarnation existence is encapsulated in this portion of verse 1, having loved his own, having loved them to the uttermost. This is not some promiscuous love where God loves everybody, having loved His own, those who He owns by virtue of His purchase, by virtue of the shedding of His blood. He loved His own. Those who are foreordained from the foundation of the world, He loved His own to the uttermost. And this is the reason behind the salvation of His elect, the motivation behind everything that God brought the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth to do was he loved them to the uttermost. His people, his beloved bride, his motive was simply this. He loved them. And he didn't love them because they were lovable. He didn't love them because they did something that was noble or righteous. He loved them even in their despair. He loved them even in their hardship. He loved them even in their fear, in their confusion, in their anger, and in their sin, and in the multitude of their sins. He loved them because they were His own. And this was the reason for the salvation of His elect. Thus the reason for the ceremonial foot washing by the Lord Jesus Christ. He washes the disciples' feet out of a divine passion of love. This act was born out of divine passion, a love for his people. Now, historically, according to the Hebrew tradition, the foot washing ceremony was simply an act of hospitality. And this is why Abraham washed the feet of his guests, maybe not initially knowing that his guests were actually Yahweh himself coming to Abraham as a theophany, it's called. But perhaps he did know eventually that this was the Lord and he needed to bring a sacrifice. So foot washing in scripture is first introduced in Genesis in chapter 18 when the Lord appears to Abraham on the plains of Mamre. And notice what he says in verse 4 of 18. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves, comfort yourselves under the tree. So Abraham was going to give them this customary greeting This was a customary greeting during the ancient world as an act of hospitality and the honoring of the gift so that they could rest just a while from their travels. And this is what was so distinct and confusing to the disciples. 
Adam Clark explains the practicality of the custom. He says, in these verses we find a delightful picture of primitive hospitality. In those ancient times, shoes such as ours were not in use, and the foot was protected only by sandals or soles, which fastened round the foot with straps. It was therefore a great refreshment in so hot a country to get the feet washed at the end of a day's journey, and this is the first thing that Abraham proposes. R.J. Rushduni adds this, he says, Normally, on arriving at a home, someone, commonly a servant, in many homes, would wash and dry the feet of all visitors. Now what is striking about this peculiar and particular ceremonial Passover feast is that it seems as if there were no household servants to administer the washing. The room had been borrowed, and only the Lord and certain of his guests were in attendance. Now, if you understand what is happening here, not only the twelve apostles were there, but we have we have Mary and, and others were there. There were many at this feast, but there were no real hired servants for this festival celebration. All the arrangements were made by the disciples and those in attendance, but there were no real hired servants. So consequently, it is highly plausible that no one's feet were being washed upon entering into the upper room. Who would do it? Who would initiate the custom? Well, now Mary had initiated it in time past in Luke chapter 7, where she washes the feet of Jesus with her hairs and her tears. She takes the initiative. But upon this occasion, it is Jesus that tends to the duty of a hired servant. The second instance of foot washing during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which preludes the destruction of that wicked city, where Lot, acting as a hospitable servant, washes the feet of the two messengers, who again is the Lord appearing as what is known as a theophany, a pre-incarnate God. In this hospitable act, Lot not only shows customary hospitality, but he shows something else. As with Abraham, he shows himself as a man who's a servant. He shows that he is the heart of a servant. As the master of the house, he's also showing himself as a servant. And he offers this foot washing in Genesis and chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. And there came two angels, two messengers to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot seeing them rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. So he is offering to wash their feet. A true, true servant. He had the heart of a servant. So foot washing was a hospitable act. Now, foot washing as a ceremonial commandment, however, does not appear until the wilderness sojourn. So, at this point, when this foot washing is translated out of being just simply hospitable to a ceremonial act, it is now used as an act of purification. Notice in Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 17 and following, And the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass to wash thereof, and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. It was ceremonial. 
A basin of brass was to be made for the pre-ceremonial washing and it was to be placed between the tabernacle and the altar and it was for the ceremonial washing. The washing was to be performed immediately. They were commanded to perform this washing immediately before they did any act of administration. So before they did any priestly duties, they had to wash. Notice verse 20. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water so that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. Notice how serious this washing was. It was a serious thing that before they could do anything, they had to be purified through this ceremonial washing. Because this ceremonial washing was a matter of life and death. If the priest did not wash, they would be killed if they entered into their duties defiled. Jesus is now washing the disciples' feet so that then when they, so that when they enter into their gospel duties, they would be acceptable before the Father by the sacrifice of the Son and the purifying action of the Holy Spirit. Now the next verse repeats the threat while adding a generational aspect to this washing ceremony. Notice, verse 21. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they die not, and it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him, and to his seed throughout their generations. To the high priest, and to their seed throughout generations. So this was a continuing statute. Obviously, God intended this washing to continue, but not in its ceremonial form. The washing was to be a result of the shed blood of Christ and its sanctifying application by the Spirit of God to the individual. It was a ceremony which had a spiritual efficacious application. And this too is in view in the washing of the disciples' feet. That was to be the substance of the washing the sanctifying power of the Spirit on the elect, making them sufficiently empowered, prepared for the Master's use. For without being sanctified by the Lord, the priests were going to die. They could not perform their administrative tasks. So this this signifies a purification for all priestly duties and for the future priests in their priestly duties Unlike the other gospel accounts of the Passover, John's account of the Passover focuses on this foot-washing event. And this is the crux of the message. Now, at this point, Judas, in conspiracy with the chief priests and the scribes, seeks to kill Jesus. From the beginning, it, it was always the chief priests and the scribes that were seeking to silence Christ by their constant slander, by their blasphemies, their accusations, as well as other sins against God. And these were Christ's primary enemies. These were the adversaries of Christ. These were his accusers. These were the serpents and the scorpions of the reprobate that John condemned, that Christ condemned. The main objective of these wicked men was to derail Jesus from his divine commission, making them adversaries and enemies of his work. In fact, when Peter protested that Christ should not go to the cross, remember, he he didn't want Christ. No, Lord, this is not what you should do. He was acting as an adversary. Even as a Satan, if you will, 
to the divine cause that the Father had given to the Son. And that was what prompted Jesus to identify him as an adversary, or literally to be rendered Satan. And he says this in Mark 8.33. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So simply he was just calling him an adversary to the mission that Christ was called to accomplish. So this verse teaches us that whoever or whatever sets itself against the Lord and His work is to be considered an adversary. Someone who is an enemy. Judas was exactly that. And that is why Jesus identifies Judas as a slanderer. In the Greek it's slanderer in the New King James and in the King James it's a devil. In other words, in John 6.70 Jesus answered them and says, Have I not chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil, a slanderer, a talebearer, a an enemy, an adversary. So after the washing, John is careful to record this situation. Verse 8. Peter says to him, as Christ approaches him to wash his feet, Peter says, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered and said, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. If I do not sanctify you, you have no part. You cannot be my body. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my apostle. If you are not sanctified by the new birth, by the washing of the water of the word, by the Spirit's efficacious application of the blood of Christ, you have no part with me. Now hearing this, Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands. So I am able to do the work of the priestly majesty, of the priestly work, and my head. So that my hands are sanctified, and my head is sanctified, signifying I will do the Lord's work. I will advance the crown rights of King Jesus, because my head, the way I think, I will have the mind of Christ, so sanctify not only my body, but my hands and feet also, everything. I want to be totally sanctified. Now this declaration is extremely important because Christ adds to that. He that is washed needeth not to save, but rather to wash his feet only. And then he says, but you're not all clean. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, you're not all clean. And this declaration is extremely important. Although he had washed their feet, including Judas, he remained unclean. And this indicates that while Judas's outward show appeared sanctified, it seemed, look, he's sanctifying all of the apostles. It seemed as if Judas is now part of the sanctified group. He was actually an unregenerate reprobate. He only had an outward show. So what do we know about Judas? A very pinnacle character here in this narrative. What do we know about him? Well, first, Judas was, in and of himself, an adversary, an accuser. John 6, 70 actually may be read this way. Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you follows after devils? You're following the Pharisees. You're following the Sadducees. You're following everything that is against God. He follows devils. The Greek word is diabolos. You follow after the dynamic mindset of man. But secondly, we know something else about Judas. He was a thief. John 12, 6. This he said, not that he, Judas, cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. 
Now the Greek word here for thief is where we get our English word for kleptomaniac. Judas was technically a kleptomaniac. He was a covetous man. But to the apostles, he didn't look like he was a kleptomaniac. If they had to decide who's going to keep the money, we need the most trustworthy individual. Who are we going to choose? And they all agreed. Judas. Because outwardly, he looked as if he was a real Christian. But he was a thief. Thirdly, obviously, he was not a redeemed man. Yet, he was in the company of the redeemed saints. He was the son of perdition and in the company of the redeemed saints. Literally, he was a child of damnation. Adam Clark observes this. He says, So we find that Judas, whom all accounts have been lost, and whose case at best is extremely dubious. Theologian Calmet remarks, he says, Judas became the son of perdition because of his willful malice. I want to emphasize that. Willful malice. His abuse of the grace and instruction of Christ, and he was condemned through his own avarice, perfidy, insensibility, and despair. Fully culpable of his actions. Fourth, he was also a hypocrite and a liar. He was a deceiver and he was deceived. Fifth, his conversion was a mere outward show without any real substance for he was never chosen by the Lord unto salvation. Indeed, he was a devil. John's assessment in verse 2 and the assessment of Luke 22 together also leveled the blame against the priests and the scribes as co-conspirators fully guilty along with Judas in the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kings of the earth indeed had gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his Christ to take him down. As the psalmist testifies in Psalm 2. And Peter, during the sermon at Pentecost, points back to Psalm 2, pointing to what happened to the Lord Christ. So Judas, by his own willful act, according to his own Adamic rebellious nature, his own depraved nature, his own guilty nature, his own nature and idea that he was an enemy and an adversary against the Christ, fully culpable for his own actions, and thus he is called the son of perdition. And God relates this to us through the Apostle John. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's sons to betray him. And people say, well, maybe he wasn't culpable because the devil put it into his heart. No, no, no. He was the devil. John 13 seems to identify how Judas was moved by his depraved and slanderous heart, his own depraved heart, to betray the Lord as it was prophesied by the psalmist. And we read this in Psalm 41.9. My known familiar friend in whom I trusted which did eat of my bread had lifted up his heel against me. He did it. He never feels sorry for Judas. He did it out of his own will. Adam Clark again comments, he says, this is either a direct prophecy, speaking of Psalm 41, of the treachery of Judas, or it is a fact in David's distresses, which our Lord found so similar to the falsity of his treacherous disciple that he applies it to him. What we translate as mine own familiar friend is literally to be rendered the man of my peace. This man who was to me a man of peace kissed me. Remember Judas kisses Christ. An act of reconciliation, but the Judas kiss nevertheless. He kissed me and thus gave the agreed on signal to my murderers that I was the person whom they should seize. 
hold fast and carry away. James gives some insight as to how sin is conceived in James 1.13 and following. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but let every man say when he is tempted, he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. That's what happened to Judas. Then when lust had conceived, which it did in Judas, it bringeth forth sin, which it did in Judas. When it is finished, it brought forth death. Not only the death of the Lord, but the death of Judas. So according to the psalm, Judas was not only at the Passover feast during the foot washing ceremony, but also when the Lord broke the bread and gave the wine to the twelve. Note the phrase, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread. John seventeen twelve says this, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, pointing back to the psalm that the scripture might be fulfilled. So in spite of this about Judas, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ's betrayal by the conspiracy of Judas with the Pharisees and the chief priests and the rulers, the focus of this event is not so much on Judas. The focus of this event is on the foot washing. Consider the progression. Jesus leaves the dinner table. No more would he be dining with his disciples on this side of the kingdom That would come in the kingdom's coming after the victorious resurrection. Secondly, and I believe this is significant, he lays aside his garments. That's what he did at the incarnation. He laid aside his glorious garments and became sin for us. This is a symbolic meaning. The symbolic shedding of his incarnation body and his earthly garment as well. Not only his majesty when he's incarnate, but now he's going to lay off his body. Peter says, as much, he says, knowing that I must put off shortly this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. So Christ is saying, I came, I'm laying aside, as I did in the incarnation, my majesty to take upon my earthly realm, my earthly body, with the sin of my people. Now I'm going to lay it aside. I'm going to lay aside my earthly body, my earthly garment, as to be ready to once again receive my resurrected, glorified body. Third, Jesus then takes a towel and wraps it around himself. The Bible says that he girds himself. And in this, we have a clear picture of what he would accomplish by his work. Notice, he's girding himself. This idea of girding was where the people of God would prepare themselves by girding themselves to either work or war. So they would take their robes, which were long, they would pull them up, so that they would free their legs so they can run or work or fight and they would take their robes and gird them higher. So he is now, by girding himself, he's preparing to work and to war. And he would do this by the washing of his elect with the water of the word and by his constant service in behalf of the believers for their victory, glory and inheritance while they advance the kingdom. Remember, today, while we preach the gospel, Christ is in a warfare mode with the enemy. Later, Peter would tell the saints, borrowing from the Passover feast, that they too were to gird up the loins of their minds so that they could work and war. That's what we do. We preach the gospel, we work for the kingdom. The gospel is spoken to us as a gospel with the sword of the Spirit. We have the armor of God upon us 
because we're going out into the world to war. So Peter says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, Jesus pours water into a basin, just like the Levites had to do before performing their priestly duties, and proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. Now this was an act, not so much of hospitality, but of ceremonial cleansing and sanctifying. Additionally, it was an act of ordination. At this point, Christ is actually ordaining them to be priests. It is at this point where the disciples are symbolically being inducted into the priestly line of the Levitical priesthood. Whenever we are born again, we are being inducted into the lineage of the Aaronic priesthood. They were now priests of God, priests of the Creator-Redeemer God, and they were to gird up the loins of their mind to both work and to war. There was much more to this. The action of the Lord's foot washing was also an act of service. It was a model of how the saints are to conduct themselves as they declare the gospel. Judas was a devil for many reasons, but primarily because he was all about himself. Judas was a narcissist. Everything was about Judas. He was a kleptomaniac. He was covetous. He was a thief. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples as an act of selflessness as an act of a selfless servant, not as an overlord. He is not girding himself and bowing himself and washing the disciples' filthy feet because he was now to lord over them. He was acting as a minister. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus takes occasion to use this idea of the sons of Zebedee, these misguided sons of Zebedee, to teach a very important lesson. Notice what he says in Mark 10.35 and following. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Notice, whatsoever we shall desire. Not my will be done, not thy will, rather. Not thy will be done, but my will be done. Whatever I want, do that for me. Lord, do this for me. Lord, I need this. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I need the other thing. I'm going through a difficult time. Take the difficult time from me. I'm not praying that I should learn by it, and any time you want to get me out of it, fine, because maybe I need to learn a little bit more by being in the dire straits that I'm in. No, no, Lord, here's what I want. Do this for me, whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy glory. We want to be in a position of glory. We want to be on the right hand. We want to be on the left hand. We want to be sovereign. My will be done on earth in my behalf because I told heaven what I want. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. We can. And Jesus said to them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. You may not like it, but you will indeed drink of that cup. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all, shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. 
And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. They misunderstood the role of a Christian man. They misunderstood the role of the saint. Because the role of the saint is not a role whereby a man is to be glorified and placed in a kingly position. James and John were thinking of a place of political power. The power of kings, the power of noblemen. Jesus instructs them that their place and the place of all disciples is a place of service and suffering. Note the second point. Your place as a Christian, and this is very difficult in our day to day. Oh, we live in a society that we don't, we get a sniffle and we think the world, it's the apocalypse. We think that we have a rough day at the job, a rough day on the street, or, or somebody cut us off, or somebody did this, and, and we, and we get a hangnail, or we bruise ourselves, and we have on a rough day. We're suffering. We don't know what suffering is. We have no clue. But I guarantee you, that our role, the position of the saint of Jesus Christ, is service and suffering, and the two to go together. Service and suffering. Sacrifice. Service. Suffering. As the followers of Christ, that's what we are called to do. Serve, sacrifice, suffer. And that's what it means to be baptized with the same baptism that the Lord was baptized with and to drink the cup of His affliction as He drank also. We too must drink of it. But we have expectations. We have expectations. We want what we want. We're going to get what we want and we give it to our kids. We tell our kids, oh, you want this? Oh, here, Mommy will get it for you. Daddy will get it for you. You're destroying your family. The world, America, is destroying Christendom. The church, you want it, pray for it, you get it. And those churches are slam-packed, jammed with people that think they can name it and claim it. And it was in that way, serving, sacrifice, and suffering, that the church would be victorious advancing the crown rights and the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus uses his indictment to instruct them further. Notice verse 42. But Jesus called to them and saith unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. That was truly a revelation. He is saying that if you really want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to serve, sacrifice, and suffer. You have to become a servant. Notice what he says in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. Not to be ministered to. And yet, what, are we, what, are we, what, what is Christianity today? Is it service? Sacrifice? Suffering? God forbid we should suffer. We think that when the alarm clock goes off in the morning, we're suffering because we need another five minutes. We think that when our children are out of their mind, rebellious, that we are suffering. No, we're not suffering. We've got to be serving. 
And this is a lesson in Christ-like service. If Christ, the Lord of glory, had come for this end, how much more his servants? You know, the servant is not greater than his master. The meaning of the foot washing event is so essential, aside from its obvious topology of sanctification and the forgiveness of sins and the ordination of the priesthood of the elect, which each of God's people will have this forgiveness and will be ordained. It points directly to the duty of each and every child of God. It's a covenant duty of service. How many of us understand that we have a covenant obligation to serve God's people and to serve the community at large? I I don't know. Do you see that in yourself? Do you see that in the church? Do you see it? Where do you you see it? Because if we're not seeing it, I guarantee you it's not there. Fathers, are you serving your wives? Husbands, you're serving your wives. Fathers, you're serving your children. And I don't mean by giving them things. I mean by disciplining them. Making them sit in the morning, writing their Bible, reading their Bible while you prepare breakfast and sitting with them and and telling them about the love of Christ, telling them about the duty that they have. Teaching them to be Christians, not just to be kids that go to church. And that's what we're doing. We're teaching our kids just go to church, everything will be fine, and obey mommy and daddy, and everything will be good. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. That's not why you have children. You are to disciple those children. But what of Peter? I mean, you've got to love the man. You've got to love the man. Because he's just like us. He's pig-headed, bull-headed. He's, he, he, he's impetuous. He doesn't really know what he's saying half the time. Then he's got to walk it back. Consider his protestation. When Christ comes to wash Peter's feet, he vehemently protests, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, we don't know why Peter was protesting. Maybe he was ashamed that he did not have a servant's heart. Or he didn't initiate the foot washing at the beginning of the supper. Oh no, now Jesus is doing it. Maybe I should have done that. Perhaps he thought the Lord too holy and and virtuous to do such a humbling act. Or perhaps he thought, no, 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 I'll wash my own feet, thank you very much. And we do that all the time, don't we? We want to sanctify ourselves with good works. The Lord washes not your feet. You have nothing to do with him. He has nothing to do with you. So for whatever his protestation was, we, we don't know. Maybe, maybe he didn't want the feet to be washed because he was trying to work out his own sanctification. Whatever the reason, Peter entirely, tragically misunderstood the crux and the focus of Christ's foot washing. Jesus' act of foot washing symbolically illustrated the cleansing power of Christ's atonement. And showing that whenever we go forth preaching the gospel, that was the tool to wash the feet of many. And so as we go with the gospel, we're washing, or we're praying that the Spirit would help wash the feet of many. And so he tells them in John 13, 7, and verse 12 and following, What I do, thou knowest not now. But thou shalt know hereafter. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. And ye say, Well, for so I am. For I have given you an example. You cannot misunderstand that phrase. There's no way 
that you can miss that phrase unless you don't want to hear it. The Christ of God, your Redeemer, your Lord that you say is your Lord, have given you an example that you, ye, you all should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I send to you. The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Then he says this. If you know these things, blessed are ye if you do them. That word happy is literally the word blessed. Are we blessed? Because the only way to be blessed is to serve. The only way to bless ourselves is to serve others. This is what the gospel is all about. It's not about backbiting. It's not about apologetics. Certainly not about slander or railings, about angry debate, name calling. It's, it's not about whisperings, tail bearing. It's about foot washing. Within the congregation of the saints, it's about edifying one another in love as Christ has loved us, encouraging one another. And you know, sometimes that encouragement comes in a chastisement or in a rebuke. How many times do you read about Jesus rebuking the disciples? You don't think ill of Jesus rebuking the disciples, but if someone rebukes you, you're like, oh, who do they think they are? I know better than they. Encouraging the saint. Encouraging them in the battle of all battles. That's what it means to be a real Christian. And sometimes, you know, it's not always easy to, to tell someone, to go out of your way to talk to someone about encouraging them or, or helping them out of a, a difficulty. Because we're all consumed with our own problems. But that's not what Christianity is all about. If we are the body, and we must work together as the human body works together physiologically and biologically. The hand does not say, I will function all by myself. Could you imagine the heart saying to itself, I'll pump blood just for my heart. Brain, you're tough out of luck. One final observation. It is obvious that Judas was still in the room when Jesus washed the feet of the twelve. It is also obvious that Judas had communed with Jesus during the Passover meal. Because Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, He that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. The problem with Judas was he was a make-believer. He wasn't a real believer. He was a make-believer. There's three kinds of believers. There's the true believer... There's the non-believer, and there's the most dangerous of all, the make-believer. Judas was a make-believer. He was not a regenerate man. He looked like a true disciple. He did everything that the disciples were doing. He even cast out devils, we read. But he was not true. He was not a true disciple. He was trusted as any disciple was trusted, but he was a thief. He had communed with the Lord on a number of Passover occasions before this final meal, but never was in communion with Him. So you can come to church and you could be with everyone in communion. You could be present in the communion ceremony. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you were truly in communion with Christ. While His outward show spoke highly of His affiliation with the Lord, that is all it was. It was an affiliation. He had church membership. In fact, he had more than church membership. 
He had the membership of the apostolic foundation. It didn't matter. Because the substance of that membership is not simply affiliation. It's regeneration. So, while his outward show spoke highly of his affiliation with the Lord, that's all it was. An outward affiliation without the substance of the new birth. His wickedness was carefully hidden from even the eleven men. Think how cunning. I I am amazed that he was able for three and a half years to hide his reprobation. Not from Christ, but from everybody else. And the reason for this is that God saw him. God sees beyond. And so he knew. He did not hide it from God, but he hid it from his brethren. He hid it from the others. Now this foot washing event was also a time of reflection. It was to be a time of self-examination of just how much of a servant we are in behalf of the Lord and how much of a servant He has been to us whom we profess to love and serve Him. How much of a servant have we been? How have we sacrificed for the things of God? The scripture says, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. My question in closing is this. Can that be said of us? Do we love Him as He loved us? Are we willing to put away our nonsense, our justification of nonsense, which is often sin, and stop playing with Jesus? When are we going to get serious about how we speak, what we, what we do, who we affiliate with, how we affiliate with people? how we respond to things, when are we going to get serious? Do we love Him? As He has loved us. And even more so, do we love His own as He has loved His own? In other words, do we really love each other? Are we really, do we really care about each other? We have a small church here. Big families. Do we really care about each other? Or are we two, just like Judas, simply devils, enemies, adversaries, caring only for ourselves and our own personal life's agenda? It's time, especially during the Passover season, especially during the Passion of the Christ, it's time to examine ourselves to see whether we really are Servants of the Most High God. May God be pleased to send His Spirit of self-examination into every one of us, into everyone in the earshot of my voice, lest, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Christ Jesus is in you, except ye be reprobates. May God be pleased to examine us and help us to walk according to His commandment and according to to His mercy. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.